Welcome to Flourish. I'm Diane Planadan, and you're in the right place if you're ready to create an inspired life. And we do so by working on our own personal development so we can be strong role models for those we love and mentor. Today is chapter 17 in our journey to Psych 100 from Queen's University. And the reason we're doing this online is to, you know, share with one another, help each other learn so you can become who you want to be in life. And I just love that it's the brain today. So let's start and take a look at chapter 17, the brain. We usually begin each chapter by talking about the learning objectives. And the number one on this list is name and describe the basic function of the brain stem, cerebellum and cerebral hemispheres. I know those sound like tongue twisters, but we'll get through it together. <laughs> so let's just take a quick look. If you're watching this on YouTube, you're going to see in this open, uh, open context book that we are using today is the different hemispheres. And it, I'm sure there's more to the brain than, than it shows, but let's just keep it simple because I am not a professor in any way, shape, or form. I'm just sharing what I'm learning. So the brain uses oxygen and glucose delivered via the blood. The brain is the larger consumer of these metabolites. That's what oxygen and glucose are. If you look on the actual definition, it's the different substance necessary for a living organism to maintain life using 20% of the oxygen and calories we consume, despite being only 2% of the total weight. I find that is absolutely fascinating. So if we have an abundance of brain fuel and neurons, how can we explain our limited cognitive abilities? Why can't we do more at once? Well, it's most likely explained in the way these neurons are wired up. We know, for instance, that many neurons in the visual cortex, the part of the brain responsible for processing visual information, are hooked up in such a way as to inhibit each other. When one neuron fires, it suppresses the firing of other nearby neurons. If two neurons that are hooked up in an inhibitory way both fire, then neither neuron can fire as vigorously as it would otherwise. So our neurons are actually competitive against each other, aren't they? <laughs> it's like one wants to fire up, the other one has to just wait its turn because then all the energy can go to your neuron. That's my understanding of it. But we're going to start with the brainstem and answer the first question, which is name and describe the basic function of the brainstem. So sometimes referred to as the trunk of the brain, it is responsible for many of the neural functions that keep us alive, including regulate, regulating our respiration, which is our breathing, heart rate, and digestion. In keeping with its function, if a patient sustains severe damage to the brain stem, uh, they will require life support. So it is a vital, vital component in our survival. It's vital for us to keep that part of our brain <laughs> very healthy. Now, it does go into different parts of the brain, for which is responsible for our conscious experiences. Um, so the brain stem includes the medulla, pons, midbrain, and dicephalon, which consists of the thalamus and hypothalamus. That's a lot of words. And in the big picture, I don't 
believe they're going to ask us to break down every single component of a brain cell, but it's something to keep in the back of your mind of in the big picture. So these regions are also involved in our sleep-wake cycle, some sensory motor function, as well as growth and other hormonal behaviors. If you're watching this on YouTube, there's a really nice uh, description uh, outline how this all kind of connects. So maybe uh, take a, a quick look. The next question is name and describe the basic function of the cerebellum. Well, the cerebellum is a distinctive structure at the back of the brain. And <laughs> it says the Greek philosopher and scientist Aristotle aptly referred to it as the small brain. Yes, in order to distinguish it from the large brain, the cerebrum. So the cerebellum is critical for coordinated movement and posture. More recently, neuroimaging studies have implicated it in a range of cognitive abilities, including language. Well, it's not surprising that the cerebellum's influence extends beyond that of movement and posture, given that it contains the greatest number of neurons of any structure in the brain. The cerebellum contains the greatest number of neurons of any structure in the brain. However, the exact role it plays in these higher functions is still a matter of further study. So we don't know everything about it, do we yet? No. And finally, the third component of the first question is name and describe the basic function of the cerebral hemispheres. Now the cerebral hemispheres are really quite interesting. The cerebral hemispheres are responsible for our cognitive abilities and conscious experience. They consist of the cerebral cortex and accompanying white matter, as well as the subcortical structures of the basal ganglia, amygdala, and hippocampal formation. The cerebral cortex is the largest and most visible part of the brain, retaining the Latin name cerebrum for a large brain that Aristotle coined. We just talked about how he was talking about the small brain. Now we're talking about the large brain. <laughs> and it goes on uh, to say that the different two cerebral hemisphere can be further subdivided into four lobes. And that brings us to our next question, our next learning objective. Name and describe the basic function of the four cerebral lobes. So let's start with the occipital lobe. And as you may gather, it is responsible for vision. So for occipital, I was just thinking, you know, optic, trying to make a word association there. And it's uh, as much of the, the occipital lobe is responsible for vision as as much of the temporal lobe. So the temporal lobe is also involved in auditory, auditory processing, memory, and multi-sensory integration. So the convergence of vision and auditory. And then there's the parietal lobe that houses the somatosensory cortex. And all you have to remember about that is that our body sensations and structures involved in visual attention as well as multi-sensory convergence zones. That sounds like a lot to unpack, but I'm gonna keep it simple. My understanding is this part is our body sensations or how, how, how we have all of these different feel 
we can feel things. And finally, the frontal lobe, which is, I, I've heard it's the crowning jewel of humans, uh, but the frontal lobe houses the motor cortex and structures involved in motor planning, language, judgment, and decision-making. Not surprisingly, then, the frontal lobe is proportionately larger in humans than in any other animal. This is what, <clears throat> this is what sets us apart, the frontal lobe. Now, I will go on to say that the amygdala and hippocampal formation that are part of the limbic system also includes some cortical structures. The limbic system plays an important role in emotion and in particular in aversion and gratification. The reason I mentioned that is because as much as it's not posed as a question, it is something that you should be aware of for testing. Now, we're going to move on to the next question, which is describe a split brain patient and at least two important aspects of brain functions that these patients reveal. Now, interestingly enough, split brain patients are some people whose two hemispheres are not connected, either because the corpus callosum was surgically severed or due to, due to a genetic abnormality. So these two cerebral hemispheres are connected by a dense bundle of white matter tracts called the corpus callosum. Think of it as a little bridge between the two sides of your brain. That's, that's how I kind of look at it. So these people who are born this way or uh, have, have, have had the surgery, it's really quite fascinating because of the contratal representation of sensory information, if an object is placed in only the left or the right visual hemifield, then only the right or the left hemisphere respectively of the split brain patient will see it. In essence, it says, oh, the person has two brains in his or her head, each seeing half the world. Now, this is really interesting because language is very often localized in the left hemisphere. If we show the right hemisphere a picture and ask the patient what she saw, she will say she didn't see anything because only the left hemisphere can speak and it didn't see anything. However, we know that the right hemisphere sees the picture because if the patient is asked to press a button whenever she sees the image, the left hand, which is controlled by the right hemisphere, will respond despite the left hemisphere's denial that anything was there. That is absolutely fascinating that our right, right side controls the left and vice versa. And it also goes on to say, uh, a split brain patient can simultaneously search for something in his right and left visual fields and can do the equivalent of rubbing his stomach and patting his head at the same time. I don't know if you've ever tried that, but uh, let me just say this out loud. I can do that. And I'm pretty sure my brain's not split. So <laughs> maybe it's just a lot of practice when, you know, playing as a kid, because it was always a fun little thing to try and do. Yeah, I, I'll give you a live demo sometime. <laughs> 
So the next learning objective was to distinguish between gray and white matter of the cerebral hemisphere. Mm -hmm. This is really quite fascinating because uh, once I started reading about that, I'm like, oh, gray's anatomy, gray matter. Ah, it's all coming together now, isn't it? So the gray matter is composed of the neuronal cell bodies. Um, and the cell bodies or soma contain the genes of the cell and are responsible for metabolism, keeping the cell alive and synthesizing proteins. In this way, the cell body is the workhorse of the cell. The white matter is composed of the axons of the neurons and in particular axons that are covered with a sheath of myelin. Yes, myelin, the fatty tissue produced by glial cells, yeah, that insulates the axons of the neurons. Myelin is necessary for normal conduction of electrical impulses among neurons. Yeah, kind of important there, isn't it? Axons conduct the electrical signals from the cell and are therefore critical to cell communication. People use expression, use your gray matter when they want a person to think harder. Well, honestly, I've never heard that before myself, <laughs> but it's fascinating. I like it. Yeah. And if you're watching this on YouTube, I, I show a figure of MRI slices of the human brain. So both the gray and white matter are critical to proper functioning of the mind. Losses of either result in deficits in language, memory, reasoning, and other mental functions. Mm-hmm. So what these MRI slices are showing is both the inner white matter that connects the cell bodies in the gray cortical sheet. So how do we know what this human brain does? Well, the next learning objective is to name and describe the most common approaches to studying the human brain. And this is where it all kind of comes together. So the most common approaches to studying the human brain is no longer phrenology, where they just look at the outside of your head to figure out what's going on. It is more into spatial resolution, dissection. It allows scientists to study changes in the brain that occur due to various diseases or experiences. Virtual dissection studies with living humans are also conducted. Here the brain is imaged using computerized axle tomography, which is a CAT scan or MRI scanners. They reveal a very high precision, the various structures in the brain and can help detect changes in gray or white matter. That is a lot to digest. So let's just try and keep it a little more simple here. There's different case studies that uh, they infer the brain function by measuring changes in behavior before and after a lesion. Yes, some researchers induce lesions or remove parts of the brain in animals. If the animal's behavior changes after the lesion, we can infer that the removed structure is important for that behavior. There's a, a lot of most studies about this, which is, is a whole other world, but it, it is quite fascinating. So one of these is called TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which refers to a technique whereby a brief magnetic pulse is applied to the head that temporarily induces a weak electrical current in the brain. 
kind of a virtual lesion per se. TMS allows very precise study where events in the brain happen, so it's good temporal resolution, but its application is limited only to the surface of the cortex and cannot extend to the deep areas of the brain. Then there's a transcranial direct current stimulation, TDCS, similar to TMS, except for it uses electrical current directly rather than inducing it with magnetic pulses by placing a small electrode on the skull. A brain area is stimulated by a low current for a more extended period of time than TMS. When used in combination with cognitive training, TDCS has been shown to improve performance of many cognitive functions, such as mathematical ability, memory, attention, and coordination. Where do I sign up for that one? <laughs> I think that's absolutely amazing what, what we can do now. And it's just like little electromagnetic pulses, right? The next question or learning objective was to be able to distinguish among the four neuroimaging methods, the PET, fMRI, EEG, and DOI. Now, this is where it all comes together because PET, PET scans, positron emission tomography records blood flow in the brain. And the PET scanner detects the radioactive substance that is injected into the bloodstream of the participant just before or while he or she is performing some task. Now, that's, that's how they get those neural imaging uh, with that tool is they have to inject a radioactive substance into the bloodstream. Because active neuron populations require metabolites, we talked about metabolites earlier, glucose and oxygen are metabolites, the source, more blood and hence more radioactive substance flow into those regions. PET scanners detect the injective radioactive substance in the specific brain regions, allowing researchers to infer that those areas were active during the task. Allowing researchers to infer those areas, the areas were active during the task. So where in the brain? Next is fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging. It also relies on blood flow in the brain. This method, however, measures the changes in oxygen levels in the blood and does not require any substance to be injected into the participant. Both of these tools have good spatial resolutions. Remember that, that's kind of important. The PET scan and the fMRI have good spatial resolution. Where in the brain? Again, they have that in common. But because it takes at least several seconds for the blood to arrive to the active areas of the brain, PET and fMRI have poor temporal resolutions. That is, they do not tell us very precisely when the activity occurred. That is also another key, key thing to remember. Then we move on to the EEG. And <laughs> this one, on the other hand, measures the electrical activity of the brain. And therefore, it has a much greater temporal resolution, millisecond precision rather than seconds. So that gives tells us the when it occurred. So it's better precision than say the PET or the fMRI. So like 
TDCS that we talked about earlier, which is the transcranial direct current stimulation. And I said, where do I sign up for that one, right? <laughs> it improves the importance. It improves the performance of, uh, you know, mathematical ability, et cetera. The electrodes are placed on the participant's head when he or she is performing a task. So when you're doing an EEG, you, you'll be doing a task in order for them to measure when something is happening in your brain. However, more electrodes are used and they measure and they measure rather than produce activity. Because the electrical activity picked up at any particular electrode can be coming from anywhere in the brain, the EEG has poor spatial resolution. That is, we only have a rough idea of which part of the brain it generates the measured activity. Well, and then the final one in comparison, the DOI, the diffuse optical imaging gives researchers the best of both worlds. Hey, let's just use that one, okay? <laughs> High spatial and temporal resolution, depending on how it's used. Here, one shines infrared light into the brain and measures the light that comes back out. The DOI relies on the fact that the properties of light change when it passes through oxygenated blood or when it encounters active neurons. Hmm, that is fascinating. That is fascinating. Researchers then can then infer from the properties of the collected light what regions in the brain were engaged by the task. When the DOI is set up to detect changes in blood oxygen level, the temporal resolution is low and comparable to PET or fMRI. However, when the DOI is set up to directly detect active neurons, it has both high spatial and temporal resolution. Because the spatial and temporal resolution of each tool varies, strongest evidence for what a role a certain brain area serves comes from converging evidence. There we go, back to the converging evidence. So you have to grab information from a few areas. So the final question, and hopefully that's just the Reader's Digest version about that is to describe the difference between spatial and temporal resolution with regard to brain function. So that is why I really wanted to highlight as I talked about this chapter, as we are trying to help each other learn in this course, I talked ahead of time about the spatial versus temporal resolution. The difference between spatial and temporal resolution with regard to brain function is spatial refers to the capacity a technique has to tell you exactly which area of the brain is active. And if you recall, when you're doing the PET scan or the fMRI, that was very strong in that regard. And then the temporal resolution describes its ability to tell you exactly when the activation happened. And that's where the EEG is really strong. But the strongest and the best of both worlds is the DOI, the diffuse optical imaging. It sounds like, you know, neuroscientists are still learning about this and trying to figure out the best way to unpack it all. But we're making leaps and progress because <laughs> thankfully we're not just studying the outside of our skulls anymore. Well, I hope you enjoyed this chapter. It's a lot 
to take in. It's a lot to unpack. And there's a lot of definitions. But if you listen to this over and over again, because I'm literally reading from the chapter, I did not read every single word. I tried to summarize it because it helps me learn in doing a summary. And maybe it'll help you too. Maybe it'll help you to do some of the, you know, little questions at the end. There are uh, the brain awareness video that uh, talks about the right versus left brain theory. I will share that in the show notes as well, uh, just because this is an interactive uh, book I'm, I'm reading at the moment, but I'm also reading it on paper and you should see all my highlights. It's crazy. I just want to say I'm a student trying to learn about psychology, just like you. In order for me to learn, I need to talk out loud. I need to write things down. I am not a professor. I am not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> I just want to help you and me learn and hopefully live a more inspired life. Be sure to hit that subscribe button. You don't want to miss the next chapter. And hey, we'd appreciate it. We'd love to grow our community.